Hello, and welcome to the Recovery Matters podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. Hi, Mark. How are you? Hey, Phil. Uh, I'm, I'm doing really well. How about yourself? Uh, good. Good to meet you, finally. Our paths were supposed to cross, I think, a few times, and it's good to connect with each other on Zoom. Where are you, where are you right now? I'm in, in Florida. I'm just north of Tampa. Well, okay. And so we're going to see you at the Multiple Pathways of Recovery Conference coming up, right? It certainly sounds like that, right? Oh, yeah. And I, um, you were a presenter in Colorado, and I hear your workshop went over really well. Um, I was just telling you, and I'll, I'll say it again, uh, I was so fascinated that when we put out your workshop for that conference that on, I think it was called, was it called Psychedelic Assisted Recovery? Was that the title of it? I think I think that it was, yeah. um, it, you know, that's that's the name of the pathway. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not sure what title that I had along with it. But psychedelic was a key word in there. Yeah, I had uh, while we were promoting that conference, somebody in Connecticut emailed me and said that they couldn't possibly go if we were going to support that pathway. And I wrote and I was like, yes, that's exactly the kind of thing we're interested in generating because I'm not really invested that you have to believe in this or not believe in it. I just want people to have the information and I trust that they will be able to make their own decision, right? So why not have it? And if we're getting people talking about it before they even heard you or know anything about it, I think that's fascinating. Well, you know, I, I, I think that there is a certain stigma and misunderstanding that still go along with psychedelics. I mean, the first thing that I certainly would think about right off the bat would be the Grateful Dead in the 60s. Yes. So, you know. <laughs> 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I tell you what, this is this is a little little known secret. Well, I've tell, told friends, but I don't think I've ever mentioned it on the podcast before. But that, you know, I I did acid LSD back in the early in the eighties three times, and it was some of the most enjoyable things I have ever done. Those three trips, if you will, and I I'm not you know, glorifying drug use or anything like that. However, to say that, you know, I'm 30, approaching 35 years in recovery of abstinent-based recovery, right? And mm -hmm. that is the thing that still intrigues me. And I know I'm not uh, alone in that, like Bill Wilson talked about all this and stuff, but so... I'm fascinated with this. Not that I'm going to go pursue psychedelic-assisted recovery at this point in my life, but can never say never, right? Being perfectly honest. So I just wanted to throw that out there. And I do have that kind of back the drug culture. My trips were fantastic. I didn't have a bad trip. But that's not what we're talking about here, is it? Or is it? No, no, <laughs> no, absolutely. Right. Absolutely not. However, that was uh, just like you. That was how I, I, I had my introduction. Uh, you know, these really pleasurable, uh, pleasant experiences. And in fact, they did lead me to tour with the Grateful Dead. Mm -hmm. uh, I went out, I was working in Connecticut as a telemarketer. I was working in New Haven for the uh, uh, firefighters union. Uh, making phone calls for them and they gave us a week off and it just happened to be when some shows were in uh the midwest and i decided well you know i'll pack up and i'll go and see one show 
And uh, two years later, I was still on tour. And uh, so, uh, you know, there's a huge difference between those days when uh, I was taking acid and when I was taking mushrooms for fun, for, uh, you know, the enjoyment behind it, for the recreational uh, part of it. However, there's a much different side to psychedelics that uh, have helped me and I think that deserves to be recognized. Great. So, um I don't even know where to start with you. Where do you want to start? I mean, you talked about all of a sudden picking up and going on the Grateful Dead tour. That we, I got so many questions about. But how did you get to that point? Why did that become of interest to you? Jeez. Uh, you know, uh, I, I started – my mom was a counselor. Uh, she, she did intake work at Gunster, Gunster House in Bridgeport. I remember and, that uh, place. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it well, it was it was a great place, yeah. and I remembered going down there uh, with her as as a, a teenager and being able to meet all the guys. Uh, and I also did twelve step calls with her. So uh, you know, I didn't use drugs for a long time, and uh, but but before I did. I began reading a lot of books. Uh, you know, I remember reading the electric Kool-Aid acid test uh, by Tom Wolf. You know, I remember read this was before I did drugs. Now, uh, I remember reading Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And uh, I said, you know, I think that there's something here. You know, I could really identify with the way that people carried themselves then. Uh, they were a lot more loving, but they were a lot more open about their beliefs. And that was one of the reasons why I really resonated with it. And then once I began to experiment with LSD, then, you know, other things began to happen. And unfortunately, uh, my LSD use uh, also coincided with my addiction because within uh, a few years of, of initially using acid, I was using crack. So a lot of that went away. Hmm. What was two years with the Grateful Dead like? It was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. uh, it was complete freedom. But, you know, you have a, a lot of different people that go to the shows. You have wealthy people uh, or people that just might uh, shoot in for one show. And then you have the people that actually uh, uh, follow the Grateful Dead around. And uh, out of those folks, everybody has a little hustle. Uh, they try to find a way of making money. And uh, some people uh, might sell grilled cheese sandwiches. Other people may sell imported beer. And uh, I ended up selling acid uh, to be able to get around the country. So, um, you know, uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, however, I took a lot of risks and I eventually had to end my tour because of that. You cracked me up already. Grilled cheese sandwiches, domestic beer, or acid, the little side hustles. <laughs> well, you know, or, or the other one that was always big was nitrous, right? Mm. So uh, what people would do would be they would uh, either steal tanks uh, of NO2 or they would work out deals with dentists. And mm. so they'd bring these big 60-pound tanks and be pumping out balloons and you have these big lines of people huffing balloons. And, uh, you know, I, hey, I had a balloon or two in my time, mm -hmm. but, you know, after a while, you know, you get tired of falling down. What years were you out there with them? Yeah. So I, well, I initially started going to shows in 89 and I started on tour on July 4th of 1990. That would have been the, uh, Sandstone, uh, and, and that would have been, it would have been in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How and, do you describe of uh, the group of the people that were the deadheads that toured with everyone? What was the organizational? What was the culture like? How would you describe the culture? Well, I mean, it was like a huge family. Mm. It was truly a huge family of people that went around. Uh, you know, hey, look, if you look at it uh, in the perspective of, of the 12 step programs, right? Uh, you had people that had a common purpose that were trying to do one thing and they stuck together. You know, um, so it was it was a very unique opportunity. And you met a lot of a very I met a lot of very kind, caring, loving, intelligent individuals. Uh, however, there, there was a darker side. You know, a lot of the people who were like me that sold acid also had habits. 
there was a, a group of people that toured uh, with the dead that just sold heroin. So you have to understand that, you know, the lot scene wasn't always pretty. You know, uh, I mean, if you go as a, again, as a tourist, you know, you, you may not see all that. But after you've been doing it for a little while, you did see the darker side. Um, overall though, I can say that it was a, a beautiful experience, uh, and like something that I'll, I'll never forget. Nobody will be able to take it away from me. And, uh, I'm one of those people that don't believe that any of the new bands, uh, that are out there that don't have Jerry Garcia, I just don't see them as being the Grateful Dead. Um, you know, no matter what they brand themselves at, the, the music just isn't the same without without his spirit. Mm. And that that's the truth of the matter. I believe you. Um, so after your tour, what happened? Well, um, <laughs> in <geez>. a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, what I was doing was uh, I, I traveled with with a friend. And uh, we would sell acid together. And so after he would sell the acid to people, I would ask them, well, if this is something that you like, I will mail it to you year round. And uh, what ended up happening was that uh, a person that I had mailed some LSD to um, got into trouble. Um, he got pulled over for a DUI and he tried to get his cuffs behind his back and he tried to shove the sh sheets of acid into the seat of the car which worked um i you know it was i guess it was an older car and after it was a small town and after about a week they found them they interrogated everybody they threatened him and he turned over on me and uh i ended up being set up and uh when i showed up to his house uh, I was greeted by the Illinois State Police, the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, and uh, members of the DEA. What? Yeah. So let me so let me ask you a little bit. Where did you find acid? Did you did you manufacture it? Did you buy it? How did you do? How did you deal in that? Yeah. So well, interesting story, right? Like my life uh, seems to be a. a just this whole patchwork of synchronicities and meaningful coincidences. And what had happened when I went to, uh, to Bonner Springs, Kansas to the show, I got there a day early. And so I went to a rest area where people were like, people were camped out ahead of time. And I met a person and, uh, he had, an, he had an unlimited supply. He could get access to anything. So it was like, I, ran into one of the suppliers and he was the one who said actually this this was his proposition he said look we can take your money i think i had five hundred dollars which really at that point in time in the 90s was still a lot of money mm -hmm. and he said we can take this and we can invest this money and uh will i'll sell the acid you just have a good time and we'll, we'll at the end you'll still have your money left and you'll have some acid to take home and and sure enough like at the end we had a tremendous amount of asked and we had a bunch of money and the next thing i knew i was in lexington kentucky at the next show and uh you know uh so what it came down to was i was never really manufacturing however i could get the uh the raw crystal the way that lsd uh you know is uh i guess it it, it's lay either laid down onto paper or it's made into bottles of liquid and one gram of crystal LSD is equal to 10,000 hits. So, um, you have to understand, you know, when people, uh, you know, uh, speak about even touching the crystal, which I've done, like you're instantly peaking, like uh, instantly, you know, so it's, it's a very unusual experience. <laughs> I like a very unusual experience. All right. So, yeah, there's a whole manufacture and a whole culture around the distribution of that. Um, well, just to inter interestingly enough, right, and this is one thing that people don't know about the Grateful Dead is that they were formed around LSD, mm -hmm. right? So they had the acid tests that were going on in San Francisco, and you had one person, um, Augustus Stanley Owsley, and he what he was trying to do was put together a house band 
that would play at all these events. And sure enough, he was able to do that. And uh, they were called the Warlocks, and eventually they became known as the Grateful Dead. And all of their symbology, everything that they use, uh, the bears represents uh, Owlsley, and a lot of the symbology represents LSD. And I think that we forget that that was the true culture behind this music. Yeah, that the documentary on one of the was it Prime or Netflix or something um, was fantastic and talked about all that stuff. I, I really enjoyed that. And here we are. We're talking with somebody who's here. You seem somewhat sane and healthy, but then again, you had all these people meet you in Illinois. And what was the result of that encounter when you got rolled over on? Well, um, it's it's a, a rather a long, complex story, um, but it involved a, a lot of of help from my dad. You know, uh, my dad put out uh, initially uh, a small amount of money, and at the end, just to have somebody sit in on my sentencing, it was close to seventy five thousand dollars. You know, and that was for a, a fifteen minute sentence hearing. So I ended up doing some time in federal prison. And, uh, you know, it, just to, to kind of end the story, you'd figure that uh, I would have learned my lesson. However, when I got out, out of uh, federal prison, I decided to go back out to California and give it a try again. Hmm. And how did yeah. that work out for you? Well, I, I, I'm here, aren't I? <laughs> yes. you know, um, yeah, yeah. You know, I think that the uh, the, the best lessons that I learn are from uh, my bad choices, from my, the, the mistaken thinking. You know, um, you know, there's only so much that we can learn from what people tell us. And sometimes it takes, you know, uh, these mistaken beliefs to get to the right ones. So it sounds like parenting. I have five, uh, five kids and, you know, well. I've told you this might be this way, but if you want to make that decision, go for it. We'll see what happens. You know, I can tell you, I didn't consult with my parents <laughs> I know. On, 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 on this at all. Neither did I, you know? neither did I, they would have yeah. told me something different. So yeah. you've kind of created a name for you in the recovery community or starting to anyway, how would you, how did you start your own recovery and what does your recovery look like today? As I had mentioned, uh, you know, I didn't pick up uh, uh, drugs or harmful substances until I was a little bit older, right? Mm -hmm. um, when I was 15, I began to smoke, uh, to smoke pot. Um, I, I just, I never really drank. Uh, my mom was an alcoholic and I swore I would never become an alcoholic. So I became something else. Uh, you know, I can say that from the beginning, my relationship with cannabis, uh, wasn't healthy, um, because it provided me just like we spoke a little bit about the acid, you know, there was the, that, that euphoria to it. There was that release. And I was going through some very challenging times after my parents divorce. And then when I went to live with my dad afterward, you know, uh, which was, it was very hard. So I began to medicate and, uh, I was working at a, uh, a Burger King as a breakfast manager, uh, while I was in high school and we had a, a person transfer down from Detroit, Michigan. And, uh, one of the things that they brought along with them, uh, was crack. So we would, uh, every night after we, after work, we would smoke a joint. He said, uh, you know, would you guys like to smoke a Primo? And, I, you know, I'm a young, I had never heard of that. So I would say, you know, well, we'll go ahead and do it. But what I didn't realize was that it took a trip going down into the ghetto. And uh, like, so I'm, I'm, I'm a young, a, a young kid, uh, you know, and I, I was the driver and we would go down there and he would come out with, with rocks of crack that were the size of marbles. And again, I, I really, I'd heard about it. I'd read about it, but I didn't, I didn't understand the implication of what I was doing. And, uh, you know, really that, that I can stop there because once I picked up the crack, you know, pretty much all bets were, were off. You know, I faced a lot of consequences and, uh, my relationship with any substance that I picked up from that time wasn't a good one. Hmm. And, uh, you know, again, with a mom, 
that was uh, in recovery herself and that worked in the industry, she was she was supportive, um, you know, and this wasn't a new story. You know, this wasn't a new story to her because this was an issue that that had run in my family for many years. Mm. You know, it was something that cost the uh, the life of both of her brothers and her sister. And, I, you know, uh, as a child, see, the thing is, is I may not have had the relationships that she did with them, but I had a relationship with her and I would have to watch her cry and struggle, you know, over that. So, you know, uh, with the idea that I was like them and that she knew the best way for me to go, I began to approach recovery very traditionally. I went to a lot of NA meetings. Uh, I also, you know, did, did, did the stuff that other people do. I went into detox. I tried uh, a number of rehabs, uh, several of which I was asked to leave. You know, uh, I, I was a young kid. And uh, I always liked to talk to girls. And uh, it seemed like at that point in time, uh, they really didn't want to talk to women at all. And, uh, you know, uh, for some reason, I would always end up in a chair uh, next to them or some reason. Sometimes we'd end up in the same chair together. I could never figure it out. And I would be asked to be to leave. And, um, you know, even with the support of my family, um, you know, I would have good years and I would have I would have bad years. You know, um, I, I uh, picked up uh, more uh, one year, one and two year uh, tags and uh, tokens that I can imagine. But I, I never made it to three years. You know, I would always seem to get up to a, a, a point and uh, something would happen and I would pick back up, hmm. you know, so that that's what the, the first part of my recovery looked like. Um, you know, the second part was a, a little bit different. You know, and, and interestingly enough, right? So the one thing I did fail to mention was that during that first the the, the first time in real effort in recovery, uh, I, I had an article featured in Grapevine in June of 2014, um, and it wasn't a pretty story. It was for walking out of a Sears at the Orange Park Mall uh, just outside of Jacksonville with two Husqvarna chainsaws and uh, being caught by loss prevention because that was the kind of, of human being that I came became when I ran out of, of drugs. You know, for me, the, the party never stopped. People liked to be with me, um, may, not necessarily because they liked me, be, because they knew my habits. When I used drugs. Hmm. So. That was a lot of territory you just covered. Oh my goodness. Um, I think your experiences with like the grapevine article and chainsaws and all of that, and you knew you had to do something a little different in recovery, I think, right? You know, I, I tried different sponsors. You know, I thought for a while that a different sponsor was the answer. Uh, I also remember thinking that maybe it was the fact uh, like an N.A., they have a step working guide. And uh, that's one of the like a lot of sponsorship families are, are very adamant. You're going to mm -hmm. work out of the step working guide. And after you've done stuff like three, four, five times, you're like, you know, no, I don't really don't want to do this. And so like I did research like there's another uh, a guide uh, that's uh, uh, called Back to the Basic, which is uh, working doing questions out of the basic texts that are guided. It's by a gentleman by the name of Greg, who is one of the original founders of NA. Mm -hmm. So I would try to find different things to, to try to look at things differently. Um, there was uh, I think that there was one thing that was really holding me up. Um, relationships, mm. you know, uh, I always, uh, you know, I was a young, a uh, young guy at that point in time and really wanted to settle down. And I was always looking for somebody to get married to, you know, I was always looking for that perfect person. And unfortunately mm. that would take me a lot of the time away from my recovery. And when I would find that perfect person, they, they would, they were far from perfect and it would, it would end up taking me out. So I, uh, I, I began to take a look at the the, the little things like that, you know, uh, you know, what am I doing? Uh, what are the mistakes that I'm making mm. that 
continually send me there. But unfortunately, a lot of the work that I was doing was very surface, you know, and I think that 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 becomes the issue. Maybe it's sometimes it's the sponsor. You can only heal as deep as your sponsor is able to take you. They have to ask you certain questions, uh, you know, in that particular relationship. And with uh, written material, hard to find that heart connection. So in the time that we've talked so far, I would assess you as being very self-aware. And I've always believed, well, maybe in the last few years, I've become more to this belief that recovery is a journey to self-awareness. That, and instead of going surface, and I, wanna, I want you to talk about what you mean by going just surface issues. Talk a little bit about what are surface issues and what does going deep mean? Because I've always talked about going deep and looking inside as where I, I have the most discovery for my recovery. I'm very passionate um, about recovery. And I also believe that some of the stories that I have, that people want to hear them, that they can relate, and that just maybe somebody will hear one of my stories and will decide to do things differently or will be willing to get help or to take things to the next level. Um, so I'm a little bit verbose sometimes. However, uh, with uh, the, uh, the psychedelics, I had a terrible relapse. My dad died. I ended up inheriting a significant amount of money. I returned to old behaviors and I spent roughly two years in my bathroom getting high. Um, I was smoking about $3,000 worth of crack a day. And, you know, just by accident, as, as, as everything else, I uh, was reintroduced to the idea that psychedelics may help. And so that was uh, something at that point in time that I was willing to do. And again, uh, you know, beginning to use these, uh, they immediately have you turn inward. They, these medicines will uh, have you even re-experience uh, some of the uh, the things that you go through. I think that that's with uh, traumatic events, with uh, challenging relationships, um, you know, that sometimes you, you all really need to go through it again. You need to be able to uh, experience it, uh, look at it from the outside, um, you know, almost as a spectator and uh be able to make more appropriate choices, you know, as to uh, the way that you you want to respond. Because you know, it's not it's not so much what happens, right? It's the way that we respond to things, and so that's what I, I never got. That that was the part that I never understood uh, was that uh, when I would speak about the relationship with my father, you know, um, it was it was very like off of my skin. You know, I could never express how painful it was. Um, I could never um, express, you know, and, and, and nor really did I know, you know, being at such a young age and going through uh, some of the, uh, the verbal uh, and emotional uh, abuse that I did from him, I didn't realize how deeply it affected me. So I was locked into uh, these repeating behaviors, and I, I couldn't understand why. And one, that's the way that I was able to really break free from things was by uh, recognize. I started to recognize, look, this is a pattern. This is a pattern. This is a pattern. And I was able to see rather than like, so I went to prison eight times, right? So you would think that after the first, second, maybe third time, I would get the message, right? And, uh, you know, I found myself doing things like that where I would make the same mistake three or four times. And this was something that allowed me, working with psychedelic medicines, allowed me to step back and really look at things from the outside, um, it also, they also allowed me to, uh, really reframe things with my dad, just with our relationship, uh, because I found, uh, that I was a lot more like him than not, you know? And, uh, you know, I think that, 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 that's, it's very painful when you realize, wow, I'm, I'm like the person that abused me. Um, maybe I don't, uh, react. Uh, with anger, but I react with sadness. I react with other things. I have a lot of the same, uh, the same feelings. And I, I, I had to look at why, why my dad got there as well. Wow. 
Um, can you describe or talk about um, how you got introduced to, I love that you said psychedelic medicine, and how that was administered and what the first session was like? Yeah, so sure. I, I, I found them in my bathroom while getting high on YouTube. Yeah. So uh, as I was, as I was smoking crack, right. Uh, I would, uh, watch YouTube, um, and, uh, like all sorts of different things would come up. And, uh, by that point in time, like I still had some money left and I was really getting tired of my family. Um, I, I had, I, they, they were concerned about me. Um, but I also had a lot of people from NA that were coming to my house and, uh, I really, I wanted to go. So I decided that I would go to South America and I could find a cocaine and psychedelic shaman. And so I Googled it. I Googled, uh, yeah, I Googled it and a a video came up. Actually, a number of videos came up, right? Uh, They were all on a podcast uh, called London Real. And uh, the host did a lot of interviews. And one of them, the one that really caught my eye was a video uh, interview with Gabor Mate about ayahuasca and addiction. Mm-hmm. And so I smoked uh, after seeing this, I said, you know, this might work. And I kept watching the videos, but I smoked on it for about six months. Mm-hmm. Like I would just watch them and I'd say, yep, I can do this. And I, I started making efforts. Then I started to reach out to retreat centers here in the U S I actually paid to go to retreats that I, I never made. And, uh, I finally ended up, uh, I don't, I don't know exactly what happened other than the, my money was getting low and I started to have a lot of support from my family where they said, we're willing to try anything. And, uh, so I found a, a practitioner that works with Ibogaine. Um, Ibogaine is a, uh, it's one alkaloid, um, off of the Iboga Tabernath, which is a perennial shrub, which is native to Africa. It's been used by the pygmy tribes uh, for thousands of years. And it's really popularized by the Bwedis, who have been using it uh, not only as a rite of passage for young men, but in, in tonics. Uh, they use it for, uh, for stamina. They use it as an aphrodisiac. But they've also found that people that have uh, substance use disorder, most specifically uh, those that uh, use opiates, um, have incredible success with it. And uh, I, I was I was desperate. I, I really needed to do something. And I found at this underground practitioner I chose to sit with, I began. And uh, that was my my first experience. And what was the first experience like? There's two parts of it. The uh, in the 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 U.S. because the practitioners are doing this on their own and it's not done in a medical setting or they don't have a lot of support, they give you a smaller dose than they might say if you were to go to Costa Rica or to Mexico. That's called a flood dose, and what I got was a psycho spiritual dose, so it was small. Um, however, the experience that I had, I had some. Uh, uh, visuals, the way that those work, uh, you don't have your eyes open. You close your eyes and everything is inside of your head. And uh, so I had uh, like, I had a very good introduction, which let me know that, look, this, this can help. And the interesting thing that I found was for about three or four days, I would hear my inner voice. I would hear this whisper and uh, I would be walking by people and be like, tell them hello and ask them how they're doing. And so I was in a, ho- I was in a hotel when I did the began, and I was walking uh, next to some people and I said, ask them if you can carry their bags. Like, so it was really interesting where uh, it pulled out a deeper presence in me, a deeper good. And that was enough to, uh, to get me to really want to commit to stop using. But there was more. Well, tell me more. I'm like so fascinated. You got me like hook, line, and sinker right now. Well, so I, I was, I knew that at that point in time that I, I might have broken free from the addiction, like from the using, because you have to realize, like when you're smoking three thousand dollars worth of crack a day, like 
Yeah. Oh, it's hard. It's, it's it, no, no pun intended. Um, it's, it's real, it's really hard. Right. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you, you don't end up, I didn't sleep. I didn't, I would pass out after about two weeks. I didn't have to eat. Um, I mean, like it, it was, it was really bad. And so once I had done this and I said, you know what, I, I think I've broken that cycle. And that was when I knew I needed to do the deeper work. And so I turned to ayahuasca. Um, you know, I think everybody's heard of ayahuasca now. Um, you know, uh, geez, you've had Will Smith and, uh, God, you've even had Aaron Rodgers, uh, the quarterback with the Green Bay Packers, you know, speak about this and how it helped him. And so it was something that uh, I felt as though uh, might be able to help to take me to the next level. And, uh, I drank in, uh, 11, 11 ayahuasca ceremonies over about a four month period. Yeah. And? Well, um, and uh, I thought that I had all of the answers. Um, I really felt as though I uh, had made some incredible progress. And yet what I failed to realize was how uh, easy it was to get back into some of those same patterns that I spoke about. So um, what I ended up doing when I, I started to feel better was I started to do some of the things that I did in the past that would continue to make me feel better. I reached out to an ex-girlfriend that I hadn't spoken to in, uh, a, geez, a few years, and I asked her to move back in with me. And, uh, and it, you know, I think we all understand why, why they're called exes, and uh, that left me with it left me with a lot of very uncomfortable feelings that I didn't know how to deal with. In addition, I had went through some physical stuff, and uh, opiates had never been my issue. Like I had had some problems with heroin, but overall, opiates had never been an issue. And rather going to the, than going to the hospital, I bought some pain pills, and I decided to self medicate. And uh, within. Uh, four months of actually beginning on this, I ended up going back into my bathroom for about another six months. Hmm. Yeah. You're taking yeah. me on quite the roller coaster ride. So, I mean, if I'm feeling this, I can't even imagine what it was like for you to live this. And all right, we're now another six months in the bathroom and (laughs) turn the page yes well so you have to understand that this time i was conscious of what i was doing because i had worked with uh these different uh plant teachers and i by that that, by this point in time i had committed to this way of life because i had i signed up for a coaching program i uh, uh decided to become a cambo practitioner cambo is the secretion off of a a frog that's uh, native to South America. It's it's not psychedelic. It's just it's a purgative. It, it helps people with these uh, the uh, cleansing processes, right? So I was all in, and I'm sitting there smoking crack, knowing that what I was doing was wrong, but I couldn't seem to find a way out of it, you know. And that was where, uh, you know. It, the, the reason why I had related to what Gabor Mate had said was because it was the first time that I had heard someone say uh, that they believe that the main reason why people use is due to trauma and due to these issues in, in development that uh, many of us have and that we don't know what to do. And because we come in as these broken human beings, we're trying to medicate. And so that was what had got me at first. And once I came back, that was when I started to actually approach the issues. That was when I started to say, okay, well, now that I know, you know, trauma, uh, my relationship with my father, my relationship with my mother are really big issues. I began to take a look at those. And that was how I actually became abstinent from harmful substances. What does your recovery look like today? December 1st was 26 months for me. Mm -hmm. So during this 26 month period of time, I have worked with ayahuasca a number of other times. Uh, I regularly incorporate psilocybin that uh, mushrooms that I'm able to pick into my recovery practice. But honestly, um, that, that, that isn't so much what it's about. Um, I haven't used uh, psychedelics in several months. 
probably two months or so. Um, and I've been spending a lot of time doing integration work, really taking a look at all of these things that got me to where I am today that uh, will make me a better person, that will be make, make me more capable of helping others. Um, you know, in addition, you know, I, I do work, I, I work in this space, right? Um, I'm a paralegal. Uh, I, I work uh, helping practitioners establish church structures with psychedelic medicines. I, I do coaching. I, I coach people through experiences because I've been there before. And in addition to that, I, I try to get to conferences and I, I hope to be able to educate people, to be able to get them to the point where they're more informed whether or not they necessarily ever want to use these medicines or not. So uh, it's, I've, I've really, uh, uh, dove in. I do a, a tremendous amount of, of, of looking at myself, a lot of introspection, a lot of meditation, a lot of reading. Um, you know, a lot of the things that we might do in normal recovery, however, I've really been able to prioritize what works for me. You know, So, um, like we talked about early, there was some controversy even of having psychedelic medicines uh, in a conference. How do you answer, well, first of all, the first question is, have you ever been challenged or criticized about this pathway? And and what's your response to the quote unquote critics that if you're doing these drugs, you must not really be in recovery? Have you ever heard that? Mm. Yeah, the, gosh. Well, I mean, so that thing you've you've asked really a bunch of questions. I did. That's time. my style. <laughs> I'm yeah, sorry. And, 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 and my styles and my styles to talk too much. Whoa. So yeah, I get it. Yeah. Uh, Phil, uh I it was very challenging when I first started to do these medicines because I uh I lost a lot of friends, especially from NA. Wow. Um yeah, well, yeah, because even when you do this or when you say something to the effect of, uh, you know, I support cannabis cards. I've got one myself, right? I, I believe that, 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 that it's a helpful medication. There are a lot of people say, that, that think that abstinence is the only way. Um, but uh, again, with this, it's been a, a reframing of what's harmful to me and what's not. And it's kept me clean. And, and if, when I share all these stories about all this stupid stuff that I did, which, I mean, we've only touched the surface of what a knucklehead that I was while I was out there. I, I hurt myself, but I hurt a lot of people, especially my family. Right. And, and I, 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 I want to remind people that if I'm just 10% less knucklehead, we should really be supportive of that. And I know that my story is, is not, it's not uncommon. There are a lot of people that are out there like this themselves. So, uh, have I been, I've lost a lot of friends. I have been challenged over my recovery. I have been uh, told that it's not recovery. Um, I've been told that I couldn't say that I'm clean. I couldn't say, been told that I couldn't say that I was sober. Um, you know, so I've had a, a lot of that. Um, I, uh, haven't really had, uh, issues with trying to present the material other than at points of time, not having a good presentation. Um, I've, uh, at points of time I've said, because this is so new and I'm trying to put together all these facts, I've misspoken more than once. And at one time I, I said the word all in, about all of the participants instead of median participants. And I had a couple scalding emails and that was that like that that's really what I get because what I, I do needs to be on point so that people get unbiased information that they and they get factual information. That's fascinating, too. So um, when you're on the cutting edge of any field or any idea, um you, as you present it, I think it's a matter of practice. The more you practice, the better you'll get at it, you know? So I know the way I presented about recovery support services and uh, recovery coaching, and I've been talking about it for 20 plus years, the way I talk about it today is a lot different than I talked about it early on. And so, you know, just... I'm offering that to you just as encouragement that 
And also that if you're not irritating a few people, you're probably not doing it. You know, you probably don't have a topic that's worth mentioning about. Um, so kudos to you for that. Um, I have also have a, a good friend, uh, Jamie McDonald. He's known as Bear. He's going to be at Multiple Pathways of Recovery Conference. And he's done the ayahuasca experience, too. And um he describes it as spiritually and life changing for him. So, um, you know, and that and that was actually for me, it's really new to me. I haven't heard a lot about it. Um, I'm not overly interested in. Well, I am a little interested, if I'm going to be completely honest, about what that might be like for me. But there's a long way to go before I would actually take those steps. So let's just put it that way because uh, of my previous experience. Um, but I tried over all these years when we talk about multiple pathways of recovery to become open to pathways of recovery. Why would I... How could I possibly, Mark, tell you, how could I possibly do it as a coach, as a person in recovery, when I see you talking to me rationally, insightfully, honestly, spiritually, that the pathway you're on is wrong or doesn't work? How could I do that? And how do people do that? Do you have any idea? Well, yeah, I, 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 especially with the NA people, right? Uh, they're so locked into abstinence. And uh, like, it was funny that when I would bring up parts of my story, like when I brought up my relapse with my dad, the messages that I kept getting were, you're just not working the program perfectly. And uh, I, I will tell you, I swear to you, I may not have, have worked the perf program perfectly, but I did put my all into it. You know, I was, I, I opened meetings for, like, I opened meetings, I chaired meetings, I, I went, I didn't, there wasn't a day I missed, you know, until I started smoking dope, of course. And uh, I did all this, this step work, I was so involved. So I knew that that wasn't it. It was just the, per I, with I couldn't get there any other way. So uh, it becomes difficult when people are so locked into what's working for them. And if you're not doing what works for them, it's not recovery. Um, if it's outside of their comfort zone, it's uh, not recovery. And w the interesting part of this was, uh, God, there was uh, the Michael Pollan video the change your mind videos that came out uh, several months ago. And I thought that was fascinating to have so many NA people reach out to me and all of a sudden want to talk again because there was some sort of backing behind it. And I think that, that that's that what will end up happening is that as people see the numbers behind this, when because we're, we're starting to for years, they didn't do as much research as they did. And now there is so much research being done. And when people see the numbers that are behind uh, these these substances, these medicines, which we're using as catalysts, it's all they are. They're a catalyst, which just takes what we know to another level. You know, that's all. You know, when you use see them used as a catalyst and you see these success numbers, I hope that that'll change. No, but it's yeah. I I've come to the after training coaches for all this time that um, people with less than ten years and that you know that's the time mark is very. It's just a very general marker, right? So you probably have ten years of recovery minus like you know all those other. <laughs> Times when you say you weren't in recovery. One guy at a meeting said, I have 10 years of recovery except for three days. And I thought that was, I thought that was beautiful. Um, but around the 10 year mark, and it was true for me, so I'll just speak for me, that I became less mm -hmm. defensive of my pathway of Alcoholics Anonymous and abstinence. Because I thought that was the only way. And that's about when I started working at CCAR and started to get exposed to other pathways. And then I also realized, Mark, if you want to recover different than me, that your recovery is not a threat to, my, to me. I don't have to defend mine and you don't have to defend yours. So um, 
I love what you're saying about that. I I do I too also feel that there's more of an a willingness and an openness to explore finally other pathways of recovery that could help people. So kudos yeah. to you. Thank you. Well, I can say, you know, you'd mentioned other pathways and that was one thing that I tried. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I did. I started refuge recovery in St. Pete. You know, um, I, I do. I believe that no matter what works, it that's great. You know, and I still I, I have a, a, a tremendous amount of respect for uh, the 12 step fellowships. Oh, me too. You know, I, I watched what they do for my mom. I watched what they did for other members of my family. Mm-hmm. I, I know what they did for me. Uh, mm-hmm. While I didn't uh, end up sober or clean, uh, and I became a better human being, and I was also given all of these tools, which I promise you, I still use today. Right. You know? I, I have uh, with you know, and I think about the term pathways, multiple pathways, and to me, it's it as that's evolved, it becomes more of a tapestry of recovery. And the tapestry has many different colors in it. So if I was founded in like Alcoholics Anonymous and that's a deep royal blue, there's still a lot of blue in my tapestry of recovery, you know, and um, we just bring in other colors and other things to make this beautiful tapestry that happens to be life. Yeah, agreed. And I think that'll be that's the great thing about MPRC is mm-hmm. that people can come in and they can pick whatever they want on that quilt, right. on that patchwork, and they can decide what they'd like to learn about, what they'd like to incorporate, you know, and find just the right people there that they're able to talk to. Mm-hmm. You know, there are so many different things that uh, just pathways and uh, different views uh, that will be represented at MPRC. I'm really excited. I learned so much, uh, Mark. Thank you so much for spending the time today. I appreciate you very much. And looking forward to seeing you soon. I value your time. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Matters podcast. We hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at CCAR, the number four, Recovery. And on Instagram at Recovery Matters Podcast. Email us at podcast at ccar.us.